Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Steve. And I'm Erica. And uh, friends, we have made it to what we think is the end of this series. This is going to be the last episode as we've been taking a look at biblical siblings, their reversals and rivalries. It's a series that stretched all the way back to the first book of the Bible and the very first family mentioning of siblings with Cain and Abel. We've traced the stories through the patriarchs and matriarchs and the ways that their uh, family uh, squabbles um, both were challenges, but also moments for God to surprise us with grace. We've taken a look at how uh, New Testament families, both literal families like Mary and Martha, and um, uh, fictional families like uh, the the prodigal son's family, uh, expand on those themes and draw on the same themes we saw in the Hebrew scriptures, um, which means where are we headed today, Erica? So today we're kind of expanding the family system. Um, if you know Jesus' disciples, you know that there's a couple pairs of brothers in there. So we're going to be talking about them a little bit. But also the 12 disciples kind of act as a family themselves, even outside of those two brother and family units. So we're going to be talking about um, the disciples and how they work together as a family and and some of the things that they said and did um, to cause some rivalries within that family. And we might even get a chance to tease out what the church looks like as a family especially um, some of the conflicts that we had in the early church between Gentiles and Jews. So let's jump in with one of those um, brothers that we, we know that G- were part of Jesus' disciples, um, the famous sons of Zebedee, the sons, the sons of thunder. Wow, my S is today. Um, <laughs> James and John, um, or yes, James and John, and we're in Mark chapter 10 and verse 35. Um, James and John come up to Jesus, or is it their mother that comes up to them? I think at different points, both come up to him. And they kind of start a rivalry amongst not only the two of them, but then them versus the rest of the disciples. When they ask Jesus to have one of them sit at his right hand and one sit at his left. And, and from there, it like, it feels so much like an actual family of little children that mm-hmm. even even though they are not all biologically related, my goodness, this feels like watching a parent with a bunch of little kids, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Yep. And and like I think part of part of that is exactly what Mark the Gospel writer is trying to get across. Like constantly, Jesus handpicked disciples were immature brats to each other, and were immature. I mean, like th- th- this is this is who Jesus places the reign of God in the hands of, and says, "Now you go do it." This is evidence that God that 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 God is real in the world that they didn't completely blow it, despite the in spite of themselves. Um, but like just to, to sit with it for a minute in, in the story. Yeah, it, it starts with James and John wanting the best spots, and then the other disciples getting upset. They didn't think of that clever plan themselves. <laughs> yeah, Rob Bell has that theory that um, that the disciples were all fairly young, like think yeah. our middle school or high school age kids. Mm-hmm. And it, it's stories like this that make me go, yeah, Rob Bell, you could be on to something. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's it's like being in a room full of your high school youth group where mm-hmm. um, 
you know, one of the kids found out that, oh, pastor had time to go and see my basketball game, but pastor didn't come to see your play. And it's like, oh, no, I just stepped in a minefield and I didn't even realize it. Like, it, it kind yeah. of feels like one of those moments. Yeah, yeah. And, and it feels so very real out of, like, lived experience to me, too. Like, just literally just this morning. My daughter um, woke up and she was trying to rectify what felt like an injustice to her because last week I was cleaning out the home office and found uh, an old comic book and gave it to my son because he likes the Ninja Turtles and said, hey, here's an old Ninja Turtles comic book I got for you once and forgot to give to you. Would you like it? And then my daughter saw that and said, well, what do you have for me? And so this morning (laughs) she says, did you find something for me? And I found something I could give to her. And she looks at it and goes, I don't have to tell my brother about this, do I? And then the second, the the moment she said it, she stopped and goes, or can I tell my brother? Like this sort of like, I can rub it in and we can compare who got the better thing. And like, my goodness, these are low stakes. It's a $2 comic book and, a, you know, <laughs> something I bought from the craft store. But like, this is this is human nature. And this is exactly mm-hmm. who Jesus calls. And before we imagine that the Peters and James and Johnses and all the rest of the disciples were all these like halo imbued wise old men, maybe they were by the end of their lives, when they're following Jesus, they are self-centered and immature and constantly in competition. And they, they act like they're a family, all trying to, you know, grab for the, the, the most power or most prestige for themselves. Mm-hmm. And Jesus' response in all that, it, I think, is significant. Because Jesus, in, in the one, in, on the one hand, kind of responds the way a parent does, right? I mean, like, Jesus' response is, like, that's not how we do things in this family. Like, in, in, in the, the, the end of this story, not only are James and John now bickering, but now the other ten are like, hey, we're, now we're mad. We should get those spots of importance. And Jesus responds, he goes, you know that among the other nations, that's how it works, that whoever's greatest gets the, the most important positions of power and respect. But it's not so among you. You're supposed to be different. We do this different in this family. And he says, you know, this is where Jesus' famous line, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus offers himself as an example of, we don't do it like that. Again, and and like the unspoken end of that sentence is, in this family. In this family, that's not how we act. Um, And that Jesus really treats his community of disciples like a a, a family, like a a non-biological or what they sometimes call a fictive family or found family. And I think that idea is is important because the the early church picked up on that and ran with it. Yeah, because in particular, going to the model of the early church, um, the thing that the early church tended to do was gather for meals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like that is such a... That's a thing that families do is that yeah. they gather around the table and they that they eat together. Um, and I think that as the basis of ministry is is a beautiful thing. It's that it's that gathering together. It's that eating together because, um, again, that's that's what that's what families do. And I remember I think it was when I was a kid in the 90s, there was this like hard push for um like there was like a whole ad campaign about gathering around the table and eating together as a family and i don't remember what that campaign was called but it was um because i think like in like the 80s or somewhere around there like when tv dinners were like 
created and suddenly like there were those folding tables that you could have and you right. could like mm-hmm. in front of the TV and like that was like a thing and it had moved families away from gathering around at the table and having those conversations. So in the 90s, there was that like hard push of like, no, we need to return to this, that important things happen at that table and yeah. important conversations happen. And, you know, that's what the early church did was that they gathered around the table together and ate. I, I think that observation is so, so important, Sarah. I, I, I'm, I'm glad you raised this because it, it, it's making connections for me that maybe I, I never put two and two together before to see. But like, like you're right, the, the early church, we, we sort of assume church is sitting in pews all facing one direction. That's what church gatherings are. But for the first several centuries, that wasn't it at all. It was all sort of in the round around tables. And yeah, we prayed to Jesus and worshiped Jesus in the midst of that, but centered on the meal. And on top of that, like when Paul writing to the Corinthians will say things like he's, he's upset about the way they would eat together and then move into what we now call something like Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. And again, in our minds in you know 21st century church life, these are distinct events. There's this ritual meal that is very sanitary and with gold uh, elements, and then there's a potluck downstairs later. But this all merged together in the early church. And at one point, Paul is, is railing on the Corinthians saying, you guys are, are totally missing the point because some people are starting to eat and other people haven't even gotten there. And some people are, you know, eating all the food and other people are left out. And the people who haven't gotten off of work yet, they don't get to arrive. And it's in the context of that that Paul says, you're not discerning. You're not paying attention that you are one body together. And if you're eating this meal without discerning the body, you're, you're blowing it up. You're missing the whole point. And after enough centuries, Christians have turned that phrase, discerning the body, into unless you have the correct theological diagram of what's happening in Holy Communion, you're going to go to hell if you eat this meal. When, like, that's, Paul is not picturing theological diagrams. He's like, don't be jerks to each other when you're eating. If you're saying we're all one in Christ, and then I'm, you're elbowing each other, and some are eating, and others aren't there at the table yet, or you're all focused on your own stuff, you're blowing apart this thing being church together. And my goodness, after 1,500 years, Lutherans, for example, made a big stink about, well, this passage is the one that says, if you don't believe the correct facts about Holy Communion, Paul is saying you're going to hell, when that's not at all on Paul's radar. It seems to me like the early church, like following the the lead of Jesus, really understood themselves as a new kind of family. And that didn't solve all the problems. It didn't mean that oh, we're a family, therefore it's it's super easy to get along, but it changes the way that you get along with one another in ways that you can't when you're talking about a club or, or something that is merit-based for belonging. And I think Jesus was trying to make that connection at one point, and I don't remember what gospel this is, but um, at one point, Jesus is in a building and he's like preaching or teaching or something like that, and Somebody comes up to him and says, Jesus, your your mother and your brothers and your sisters uh-huh. are outside. Yeah. And Jesus says, who are my mother, my brothers and my sisters? They are those who follow me. They are those who like. Does the will of God. With, right. Exactly. Um, so like Jesus is trying to kind of like make that distinction in one of the gospels about. Yeah, I do have a biological family and they're outside, but inside with me is my found family. This this group of people who I am with now. And I, th- I think that the the idea of being a found family is is important in that it reminds us like 
it's not that biological family is bad or wicked or evil. And actually, you know, some of Jesus' biological family becomes a part of his found family, this church. I mean, clearly Jesus' mother is like following along and is part of the story all along if she's there even at the cross. And early church tradition has it that Jesus' half-brother James is an early leader in the church and gets called James of Jerusalem, is connected with the epistle that bears the name James and is at least quite likely to have been an early leader in the church uh, as well. So it's not that Jesus says, I hate you all biological family, but that like this new community somehow is able to absorb in the biological community and is also bigger at the same time. Yeah. And yet it seems to me like once we open that door and say that the, the church, the community of Jesus is like a family, then we got to be honest, we've been doing for like, what, eight or nine episodes now how messy family is. And to say, the, to, to call the church a family is to invite, there's going to be the possibility of messiness. There's going to be times when we don't all agree. There's going to be times where the usual expectations get overturned. There's going to be times when people assume they've got a position of power because they've been around the longest. And sometimes they, they are right and wise and Martha should be the head of the household, and sometimes it's new voices you have to lift up exactly because they're most vulnerable. So if, if we talk about church as family, and again, that's a lovely way of talking, we should be clear that doesn't solve all of our problems with how we get along with each other. It changes what, what are the available options for how we deal with conflict. Yeah, there is a parable that this conversation reminds me of about um, a, a vine- vineyard owner who goes out and he needs to find workers for the day. And so he goes to the town square, wherever it is that all the laborers who need to be hired for the day hang out. And he goes and he collects anybody who is waiting and he tells them that he will pay them the usual daily wage. And like an hour later, he goes back to the town square and again, collects whoever is there and agrees with them that he would pay them the usual daily wage. And he keeps doing this throughout the day until eventually it is the sun is setting, the work is done for the day and everybody's coming to collect their daily wage. And he pays everybody the same. He pays everybody the usual daily wage. And the people who had been there all day are furious because they've been there. They've been putting in the work since dawn. And here they're getting paid the exact same as the person who's only been working for an hour. And, you know, the the parable, I think, is supposed to teach us that, yeah, no matter what, we're all we're all in it together. We're all going to be, our needs are going to get taken care of and that we should be wanting our siblings, our brothers and sisters who have just arrived to be also getting enough to get food on their table. Like, but, but it's that, that constant, like butting up about, you know, I've been here longer. Shouldn't I be getting paid more shouldn't I somehow get a better reward in heaven because I've been a Christian my whole life and I didn't just, you know, get baptized on my deathbed and it's it's no we all get salvation. We all get God's love, no matter if you've had it since birth or there at the end. We're yeah. just glad you're here. And and to me it seems like 
that tension plays out in the parable where they're all, um, you know, people who are hired in a way. I think Jesus wants to play up that tension in that story. And it works when you're talking about people who are employed because there's a certain expectation of, I guess, uh, of, of different pay for different work. But um, that in a, when, when the metaphor switches to family, in a household, it's we all need to get dinner on the table. So someone gets the forks and someone gets the drinks and someone helps put out the plates. And we all have different jobs, but we all work together. And guess what? Even if you're the youngest kid in the family and you haven't been doing kitchen duty long, very long, you still get to eat. And even the grown-ups who've been eating all their lives long, they still get a chance to eat as well, even though they've had more meals already. We don't do that kind of bean counting. And it seems to me that's part of the beauty of the image of family as a metaphor, is that there's a sense of we all contribute to the whole, everybody's needs get met, and it's it, it obliterates the idea of your belonging is based on your merit because family is maybe the primordial community where your belonging isn't dependent on your earning. And almost any other kind of human community, we can turn into you belong because you paid dues or you believe the correct set of facts or you've earned your way in or bought your way in or whatever. Um, and even citizenship back in the Roman Empire is something you could be born into or buy. And that's a whole story with Paul, right? Where he's like, I was born a Roman citizen and you bought yours. And, that, and like, but family is this thing that you're given. And if you're given your belonging, you can't lose it by your bad behavior. And it seems to me like that's even a part of how the story that we call the prodigal son works too. It, it seems to me a really important idea that early church latched onto that if we're family, our belonging doesn't depend on our merit or what we've done to earn it which means grace is baked into the Christian community and that our belonging isn't something you can lose because of bad behavior or uh, that it, it, it's not about what I bring to the picture. And that's, that's at the core of how the family metaphor works. And I think a great example of that is Peter. Oh, that okay. Peter who, you know, Jesus even gave the warning before Jesus was arrested of like, Hey, you're going to deny knowing me. And Peter's all like, not I, Lord, never I, Lord. And then sure enough, Jesus is arrested and Peter is standing, you know, around that little fire with a couple of the servants. And they're all like, you're also one of them. Like you're one of Jesus's disciples. And he's like, no, not me. Like you, you have the wrong person. I don't know what you're talking about. And he like denies Jesus three times. And after Jesus's resurrection and Jesus and Peter are like with the other disciples and they're having that breakfast on the shore and Pete and Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, you know, I do. Um, and Jesus says, then feed my sheep. And he like, they go back and forth like this three times. And I think it's that moment of, you know, as family members, we mess up. Like there are times when we do things that we shouldn't have done or we don't do things that we should have done um, or we should do. And in, in good, healthy families, when you mess up, there is grace, there is forgiveness. And of course, there are plenty of examples where that is not always true in families because some families are so broken that that kind of grace and forgiveness is not able to exist. Mm -hmm. But I think that as families, that is what we are constantly trying to strive for. Mm -hmm. And, and it seems to me that highlights 
maybe in, in reframes, what in the end is the difference between Peter's story and, say, Judas's story, in that both are responsible for betraying Jesus or letting him down or bailing out on him. And it seems that the difference is that Judas can't possibly bring himself to believe that there could be a way back, that there could be mercy, that there could be, there's any possible way of forgiveness. And Peter dares to believe Jesus uh, invitation on the, the beach, you know, after the resurrection that indeed he's, he's restored, that he's, he's welcomed again. It, 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 it reminds me too, that like at the end of the prodigal story, when the lost son decides to go back home, he thinks he's burned the bridges too. He doesn't think there's any way for him to be a son again. He's given up on that hope and thinks, well, maybe dad will take me back as a hireling. And dad's the one who says, no, you never lost your belonging. You never lost your sonness. It reminds me of a song by Sarah Groves um, called You Cannot Lose My Love. And it's that, that notion of, as the parent sings to the child, no matter what else happens in life, you can't lose your belonging, even if you lose a bunch of other things in life. And even if you blow it, you, it it's about my grip on you, not about your grip on me. Um, and for the early church to have understood that and to, to act like that matters, um, that, that, that's pretty powerful to me. That, that suggests that church really is a different kind of community than a club with membership or, um, you know, a, a school you can flunk out of or a college you can, you know, if you blow off your classes, you get kicked out. That, that church's community is different in that way. And yet the other thing that occurs to me that makes church as family different from biological families is that we are no longer bound to needing to birth new members, but we, the, the, the church isn't meant to grow simply by let's, let's have more babies. It can grow that way, but that it's about reaching out and, and making more disciples. There, there's a, there's a, a line that comes to my mind of, of Jürgen Moltmanns, the, the 20th, 21st century uh, German theologian, who says something like that, like this, this is the big difference, that the church no longer depends on biology for its continued existence, the way like national Israel in the Old Testament, when there are repeated uh, reminders, be fruitful and multiply, it's keep the family line going because we need the nation to survive. And now the church is a different kind of community that it's okay if my family line doesn't continue or my biological family doesn't, or for that matter, my tribe or my ethnic group. It's not about we need to preserve one ethnic group or one racial group or one nationality. The church is intentionally this new kind of community that is made up of all kinds of skin colors and languages and ethnic groups. And, and it's that way by design, which means that we aren't here just to perpetuate our culture or one uh, ethnic group or one skin color or anything like that, even though sometimes church has been used as a, a vehicle for doing just that, for just being, it's about our culture, we have to keep our culture, we need to keep our skin color, our ethnic group, our racial group. Church isn't meant to be that. And I think it's also important to remember that families are constantly fluid mm-hmm. yeah. and that, you know, we're constantly growing as both people and as, as families, as communities, and that all of these stories that we've looked at in the past, what, seven weeks, um, they were, they were snapshots of those families in those moments. And 
like, likewise, if we were to take a snapshot of our families today, whether biological families, found families, church families, whatever, it's a snapshot. That's not what that family, that community is going to look like in 10 years or in 20 years. And that we might be in good places right now, or we might not be, but that doesn't mean that that's how it's always going to be. And that has to be okay. That Mm -hmm. families are supposed to families, communities, we're all supposed individuals. We're all supposed to grow. We're all supposed to evolve and change. And I, I think that's such a that's a great insight that like other things in life can be finished products or finished projects. You know, like the the author who writes a book now it's done. This is the final form. This is it. Or you know, you you, you work on some other project in ministry life or whatever. And it, now it's done and it's complete. And this is what it's meant to be. But families never reach an end point. We're always meant to be in in flux. So that the the best we can hope for is did did I do a decent job today with the day I got. And tomorrow will take whatever tomorrow brings. That that that's a pretty important insight. Yeah, because right now the snapshot of my family. If I could hang on to this moment, I would. Like <laughs> I love the ages my children are. Like there are some frustrating moments, but I'm also aware that there's going to be harder moments in the future. Like if I could just hang on to this moment, I would. But I also know that if I could do that, I would lose out on so many things. I would lose out on my youngest starting to say really cute things. I would lose out on my older son, like, learning new things in preschool. Like, I know that they need to continue to grow and to change and become the people that they are becoming. And in the same way, you know, being in a church family, so often I hear people say that they are trying to get church to be what it was 10, mm-hmm. 20, 50 years ago and not seeing the possibilities of what we could do now, what we could do in the future. The technology that we have today is very different than in the 50s. And we need to start embracing some of those technologies instead of like pushing it away because it's new and different and scary because of its newness and differentness. And it's as church families, we also need to remember that we need to be growing and changing and evolving because we can't stay static. Yeah. And that even says to me, it it changes how we look at why we reach out to people. Because sometimes you'll hear folks in, in church life talk about, well, what we need to do is we need to attract families and young kids. So we can be a, a vibrant congregation. And those future people are who will matter. Um, and, and like, again, it seems like it's trying to get like some perfect, like that's the finished product is a church has got this kind of demographics or these people instead of who are the people who are around us right now? Who are the people who we can minister right now? It doesn't matter whether they fit an ideal demographic. These are the people that we've been sent to work with and to love and to care for. And, even if you get that dream, oh, it'll be so lovely if a whole bunch of young families move in. Okay, but then those kids are going to grow up. That's their job. And they're going to grow, you know, move on to other things. And our ministry can't just be, how do we get people to stay here and live here forever? But how do we get people, whoever is here, how can we shape them with God's love in Christ? And then they're going to move on to other stuff because that's how families work. That's the point. Um, it, it's, it's, it's probably why that cliche about Parenting is a cliche that parents are supposed to give their kids roots and wings. And even though those sound contradictory, yeah, you're supposed to have a sense of groundedness in who you are, but also then you're supposed to move on and do whatever you're supposed to do next. And if we stunt 
you know, uh, our family's growth and say, we never want you to leave. We, we always want it to be perfect like this. You've done some disservice to who your kids or the next generation are supposed to be. But if you push them out with no sense of who they are, that's not been helpful for them either. Um, but it, it's that ability to be to do both at the same time that it's, it seems like the early church got it. That, that's what yeah. we're supposed to be. And if we can't take care of those that are in our congregations now, what makes us think that God's going to send us more folks to take care of? Right, right, right. Yeah. It even it suggests to me, too, I, I know that we don't intend this just to be a conversation about life being church in the age of coronavirus, but like the, 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 in, in my actual biological family, we've had to figure out things like, okay, well, we're not going to be making as frequent trips to go visit family, but can we make the effort to do, you know, video, phone, FaceTime, Zoom, that kind of thing with some frequency? And so the, the structures change, but it's, okay, how do we still find ways to be connected? And it seems like that's part of the task of church as family, too, to say, okay, we've got to find ways to stay connected. What those ways are, that's going to change because they, they've always changed. It started with us around literal dinner tables 2,000 years ago, meeting in house churches. At some point, they built buildings with crosses and altars, and we did that for a while, but that was new. And that whatever we're into right now, we'll have some things stay the same and some things become new. And instead of being afraid of it, we could say, oh, that's what we've been doing for 2,000 years because that's what families do. So thank you all for joining us in this conversation about families and siblings and, you know, like families and individuals, we are going to change and evolve too. And so next week we will be talking about something entirely new, so new we don't even know what it is yet. I can't wait to find out what it is too. (laughs) Thanks everybody for listening. Join us next time on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye.